Hey, you're listening to the Grace Auburn Church Podcast. In this week's sermon, Lee Cadden preaches on the supremacy of Jesus from Hebrews 1 in our series, Jesus is Better. My name is Lee. I'm one of our pastors here at Grace Auburn. Uh, and again, we are so excited to be here to worship with you in this place. I feel like I'm not in the middle of the room. It's kind of weird. I know that's weird, right? Like if I'm looking at the back, never mind. Um, okay, so... Uh, this past week, just a real quick recap on what our week looked like this past week, ours being mine and Matt's, our senior pastor. We went on Wednesday to Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina to be with other pastors from the Summit Network. That's our network of churches that are literally across the globe at this point, from London to L.A. Uh, and everywhere in between. And it was an incredible time of us just being reminded that we are part of a, move, of a movement. We're not just a, a gathering of Uh, a group of people here in one place. We are a gathering of a group of people in one place connected to a lot of folks all around the world. And it was such a good reminder that God loves the whole world and that everything we are doing here is a part of everything that he is doing everywhere. And so I just say that as encouragement to you because Matt and I were both incredibly encouraged to go and be uh, in a room with other pastors talking about how God is moving and what all he is doing to say yes and amen to so many things. So I just wanted you to know uh, that that's where we were this week, and it was an incredible time together, uh, just so you know. Uh, we are beginning a series today called Jesus is Better. Jesus is better than everything. And we're going to look over the course of these next 10 weeks at what the writer of Hebrews has to say about who Jesus is, what he has done, what he continues to do, and what that means for those of us here today in 2020 as we try to get our minds and our hearts and our lives wrapped around who he is and what he is doing. It's likely to have been written to a group of folks uh, of Jewish descent or who are converting from Judaism into Christianity or were really just wrestling with their faith. What does it mean to follow Jesus in light of the fact that everyone around me is suffering for following Jesus? In their context, as the church was growing, it was facing mounting persecution from the Jewish ruling class. But as things started to snowball, they were also growing in persecution from Rome as it was looking at this movement, this tiny little spark on the far end of the kingdom that's now starting to pick up steam and is starting to gain headway. And now all of a sudden, we might have to do something about it. And the study of Hebrews for us is going to be looking at God's word to a people that understood what it meant to follow him in one sense, but didn't really know what it meant to follow him now in this new sense that Jesus had come and had done the things that he had done. And so for them, as they're really wrestling through this idea of, okay, if that's true from Rome and that's true from the Jews, then is following Jesus even worth it? Is following Jesus with my life and it potentially costing me my life, is it worth it? And over and over And over again, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is better. That there is nothing and no one that is better than him. He is, in fact, supreme over everything and everyone. For them, in their context, he is better than the law and all of its requirements. He is better than the angels and every prophet that ever came and spoke. He is better than Moses, and his priesthood is better than Aaron's. He is better than the old covenant and the one that he establishes is better. He is better than the blood of bulls and goats. In every way and at every turn, Jesus is better. 
The author of Hebrews has been debated since it was written, possibly, although I would believe that if you got the letter, you knew who it was from. But for those of us reading it in the context of our scripture, uh, there's a lot of speculation on who wrote it. Uh, They believe it was written sometime before A.D. 70. And it appears that while the author was close to Timothy, that it was pretty much impossible to really nail down and define who among that leading group of early apostles and, and pastors who actually wrote this. It has similarities to things that Paul wrote, but then it's completely different from a lot of the things that Paul wrote. And so scholars today believe that while we can speculate, there's really no way to clearly identify who wrote the letter of Hebrews to the church, to those who had converted from the old way, who had converted from Judaism, who had converted, converted from this old way of following God and were now following and reigning Savior. What we do know, though, is that Hebrews was written to the church then and now. We know that Hebrews, along with all of Scripture, is God-breathed and it is useful for teaching, correcting, leading, guiding, reproofing, all of those things, and it has a unique role to play in the Bible. And so while for us, we read it in the context of 2020 in America. We will spend the next 10 weeks leading up to Easter. Yes, Easter is only 10 weeks away, if that's freaking you out the way it does me. Um, it is, in fact, just 10 weeks away. But for us, we know and believe that this book has a unique role as we study it today. The audience for this book in its original context as a letter uh, would have been Jewish Christians or those of Jewish background anyway who had a full understanding of what the requirements of the law were. And while we're going to spend 10 weeks studying this book, we could spend 10 months studying this book and not fully unpack all that they would have understand in their, understood in their Jewish context. So there's going to be moments in our study of Hebrews where we kind of summarize what all this means for those of us who are in fact not Jewish and understanding it the way that they would have understood it, but really get our head and our hearts, hearts wrapped around what it would have meant for those coming from Israel to have followed Jesus but also what it means to be wrestling with our faith and really doubting and questioning and looking at Jesus going, is this worth it? And the answer over and over and over again is yes, because Jesus is better. Jesus is above all and before all. It was written to believers who were questioning their faith, who were asking these questions. Is it worth all of this? Is it worth me giving my life, surely we would draw less attention if we just go back to the old way, if we just do things in the corner of the Roman Empire the way that we had always done it. But in this moment for them and for us 2,000 years later, Jesus is not content to just be in the corner. His kingdom is one that is ruling and reigning in the heavens, and it is coming on earth as it is in heaven. And the writer of Hebrews in verse 1 talks about in these last days. We are in These last days of Jesus' kingdom coming the way that only he could bring it through his people and through his church. And so over and over again, in the midst of our questions, in the midst of our struggling, in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of everything, we're going to continue to come back to the answer that Jesus is better. Arguably, Hebrews uh, puts more of the Old Testament in its proper context than any other book in the New Testament. And so there's going to be a lot of things that are foreign to us, a lot of things that we have to unpack, Uh, but because it does give as much attention to the Old Testament as it does, we have to ask the question, should we give as much attention to the Old Testament as the book of Hebrews does? And the answer again and again and again is yes, because I believe that to a certain degree and in various ways, we believe a modern lie that says that the Old Testament just isn't relevant anymore. 
And we, not, we may not believe that outrightly. We may not say that outrightly, but we put certain priorities or certain time or certain energy into some books and less into others. Just think of it like this. If you began a New Year's resolution and it had anything to do with reading Scripture, there's a real good chance you didn't start in Leviticus. And I don't say that half-heartedly. I say that genuinely and that, that there are some books of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, that just don't gain the attention that they should. And the writer of Hebrews says, no, 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 all of it from in the beginning to the last word from Malachi, all of it and everything in between is incredibly important because of the story that it begins telling that would ultimately find its fulfillment and its culmination in Jesus. I'm incredibly guilty of this. I think we're all incredibly guilty of this, of not necessarily saying that the Old Testament isn't important, but when we think about the volume of time we spend in the Old Testament, and Psalms doesn't count. No, it does count, but you know what I'm saying. Like There is a, a very real depth to the whole of Scripture that I believe the writer of Hebrews wants all of us to say yes to when it comes to understanding just who Jesus is and what it meant for him to come in the way and at the time that he did. So this morning, as we begin our study, I want us to begin our study recognizing that Jesus came at just the right time, in just the right moment, in just the right part of the story that God had been telling from the very beginning. So this morning, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews is right after First and Second Timothy and Philemon. So if you want to turn there, I said chapter 3, chapter 1, uh, Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, and we're really going to zero in on these first three verses, but... In order to honor scripture, in order for us to get our hearts wrapped around who the writer of Hebrews is talking to, I'm going to go ahead and read the entire first chapter here right now. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The writer of Hebrews paints a clear picture of who uh, is on the throne and who is not in this moment. And we'll get to a lot of this back and forth between comparing Jesus to the angels, to his kingdom, to his throne, to his worship versus that. Uh, the, and the role that the angels 
play. But this morning, I want to really look at Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. From the very beginning of the book, as we've talked about, the author is placing the gospel of Jesus Christ, his story on earth, his life, his death, and his resurrection, not at the beginning, but right where it should be in the story of God's entire redemptive plan. And what I mean by that very simply is you can't read the Gospels and understand their full context without reading Genesis, without reading the Exodus, without reading Joshua, without reading First and Second Kings, without reading Judges. Our understanding of the kingdom of Jesus finds its proper context and place in God's entire redemptive plan. And that plan is not one that began in Bethlehem. It's one that began in the Garden of Creation, and it goes from creation through Bethlehem, to the new creation that will come when God promises that he will make all things new. Al Mohler puts it this way. Uh, He's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He says, The person and work of Christ can only be rightly understood when given proper place at the center of history. Literally dividing time in half, right? Like We know that to be true about who Jesus is. The author wants us to be reminded or in some cases to be informed that the salvation of God doesn't begin with the gospel of Jesus, but that the gospel of Jesus came at exactly the right time, at just the right time. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, Paul says. This is not God's first word. It doesn't come out of thin air. In verse 1, he says, long ago, at many times, And in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. For generations, for centuries, God spoke in various ways, dreams, visions, prophets, those who would come and remind the people of Israel who their God was. And we have an incredibly perfect record in the Old Testament of all the ways that God has spoken to his people from the very beginning to today. Wonderfully put, Paul writes it this way. In Romans, that the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it being the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. All of the Old Testament is looking forward at Jesus. It's looking for his coming. It's looking for his sacrifice. It's looking for him being the one who would live perfectly, the one who would live the life that they couldn't live, who would live the life that we couldn't live, and who would die the death that all of us deserve so that we might have life in him. Praise be to him who comes at just the right time. The writer of of, of Hebrews affirms that the Old Testament uh, is really a prophecy of, a pointing to this coming of Jesus. All of the prophet's words, all of the Old Testament isn't final. It lacks the culmination. It lacks the one whom it's been waiting on. It lacks the one whom was promised. It lacks Jesus. And Jesus comes not to abolish the law, he would say, but Jesus comes to fulfill it. He comes to live it as it, he live as we should have, as they should have, and as they were not able. All of the Old Testament, long ago, the writer of Hebrews looks longingly into a future for things to be made right. They were hopeful words, hope-filled words that find their culmination in Jesus. But what we see at the very beginning of this letter is that we don't just serve a God who is aloof and far off. Hoffman mentioned it in praying for those who have a a tribal mindset around the world. We worship a God. We follow a God. We read about a God who speaks. 
He's not just out there managing things with puppet strings. He's speaking longingly, intimately to his people that we might hear his voice. And yes, the word of God is for our correction. It is for our leading. It is for our guiding. It is for all of those things. But primarily, the word of God is not for instruction. It is for revelation. And what I mean by that is God speaks from the very beginning because he longs to make himself known. He longs to make himself heard. He longs to make himself be as he is, the father who speaks longingly and lovingly to a rebellious and to a wayward people. This is primarily why God has long ago and in these last days always been speaking. And had God never spoken, had God never said a word, we would still be in darkness. With his word comes light. With his word comes life. And the writer of Hebrews is painting a a grand picture of the fact that God, our God, the one we serve, the one who would send his son, the one who would hang on a cross and not get off of it, not call on angels to rescue him in that moment, the God that we serve longs to be known by you and me. And he longs for us to know him, to follow him, to believe that he is a God who speaks. In verse 2 he says, but in these Last days, if all of the Old Testament is the long ago, these last days are the days that he's writing in in Hebrews. They're still these days that we live in. In these last days, God spoke to us by his son. Don't miss this. God still speaks through his son. God is not done. He has not finished speaking. He has not finished guiding. He has not finished loving. He still speaks. He has always spoken. He spoke literally as Jesus, and he continues to speak by the power of the Spirit through his word to those who believe or who are in process of coming to faith and really wrestling and asking the question, are you worth it? And Jesus says, yes, because I am better. He speaks through his life. He speaks through his death. He speaks through his resurrection. God promised, I would send a Savior. I will send a Savior. I will do this thing. I will save you. And Jesus fulfills that promise in the coming of his life and in his death and in his resurrection. And he says things like, I have come to proclaim freedom, proclaim, to speak, to talk over, to remind you. I have come to proclaim freedom for the captives and sight for the blind, the lame walk and the sick are healed. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. I have come to seek and save the lost. I have come that you may have life. I have come that you may have abundant life. Do you hear the heart of the Father in that? Do you hear the heart of him who came not primarily to give instruction, not primarily to institute a new set of rules, not primarily to get our minds wrapped around how we can perfectly obey. He came primarily because he loved. He came primarily to seek and to save the lost. I want you to just hear abundantly this morning these words from Scripture, from the Old Testament about a father who loves his people so desperately. In Zephaniah chapter 3, it says this, that the Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. 
God isn't far off. He's singing over you because he delights in you, because he loves you. The writer of Psalms puts it this way, that he brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. I think it's important as we begin our study of Hebrews together and as we worship this morning to remember that God didn't have to save any of us. That Jesus didn't have to die on the cross. God chose to save and Jesus chose to get on the cross because of his great love. He came because of his great love. He speaks today through his son. And in these last days, he, Jesus, this is verse 3, is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. No son is ever an exact imprint of a father except this son who is the exact representation of the father. Meaning if God could pick a way to reveal all of who he is to all of who we are, this is the way that he would do it. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Meaning when he speaks, things happen. When he speaks, things are moved. When he speaks, things are created. When he speaks, People are saved, dead men rise, bones gain life, and we are breathed into by his spirit. We walk and move and have our being because God speaks and because he loves. And after making purification for sins, dying on the cross, doing away with goat after goat and bull after bull after bull that was sacrificed for generations, after making purification singular, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When a priest was done with his work, he sat down. He stood for however long the festival was, for however long it took to sacrifice everything. He stood for days on end. Jesus, in the moment that he says, it is finished, returns to the Father, having made purification for sins, and sits down the right hand of majesty on high because he so loved the world. Jesus speaks and he speaks to make himself known. He speaks to make his father known. He speaks that we might hear and see and listen and believe that the goodness of God would come in this incredible way. And I believe that as much as we can be distracted by any number of things in this life, and we are, right? We are incredibly distracted by the things of this life. I believe over and over and over again throughout all of Scripture, it's telling one story that there is a God in heaven who loves. There is a God in heaven who speaks. There is a God in heaven who is is not like these tribal belief systems, that is not like these gods who would require people to get their life together and perfectly put it in a box and say, here, aren't you so glad you saved me? No, that's not the Jesus that came into this life. That's not the word that is spoken through his life. That's not the facts that are represented in the way that he died for us and why he died for us and rose again and sat down at the right hand of the Father having made purification. The reality is that God did what only God could do that we might come home. And for the Jews in that day who are becoming believers or for those who have Jewish background or descent or who are incredibly familiar with all of the the Old Testament required, this is absolutely mind-blowing. 
everything that they knew to be true about righteousness, everything that they knew to be true about what it meant to come to the Father, about how they had to posture themselves, about how they had to live their life, about how many sacrifices they had to offer. Here, in this moment here, the writer of Hebrews come right out of the gate with a statement that says, no, 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 there was one sacrifice, one purification, one person who lived a life and paid the price that you would never have to do it again. And when he said, it is finished, he meant it. And my confession to you this morning is I don't live like it's finished and I don't live like he's better. I lived like it's finished and now I have to perfectly do A, B, and C in order to make sure that he believes it was worth it. I think we move sometimes from a believing we can earn salvation to the other side of it going, okay, now that I have salvation and I believe that's true, let me live my life in such a way so that you don't regret it. So that you don't look at my life and go, man, this is really a bad idea. That's not how this works. The father looks at us because of the purification that's been made for us. And he sees his son's perfect righteousness given, not earned. Bestowed. We don't, I don't, oftentimes live in that kind of way, believing that it is finished. In verses 4 through 14, uh, a little bit of background here. The writer of Hebrews starts comparing Jesus to angels, and it's the beginning of his statements about how Jesus is better. The background on this is that in the intertestament period between when Malachi stopped prophesying and Jesus would come, the 400 years of darkness, as they're famously known, the 400 years of silence, that angels had become this uh, kind of venerated group in Jewish minds. They started praying that angels would protect, that angels would do all the things that angels are supposed to do as ministers to God's people, as the writer of Hebrews rightly puts. But they had kind of gotten to this point where not only were they venerating them and respecting them, but in many ways they were starting to deify them and worship them. They started coming up with personal or family angels. This is the time when the phrase guardian angel first showed up. The belief that there was a angel that was meant for your family all the time is not in Scripture. But in this moment... This silent 400 years, generation after generation after generation, was grasping for straws. They were looking for anything that would provide hope. They were looking for anything that could possibly make understanding of what God was doing in the universe. But I believe that that silence was always meant to simply set the stage for the one who was to come. That all of the quiet, that all of the longing, that all of the brokenness was meant to prepare their hearts for the one who was coming in these last days and who would offer His life perfectly is a sacrifice for all, bearing our sin and our shame on the cross. And there is much that we can unpack from verses 4 through 14. And this is going to be much like many parts of this book as we study it together. We're just not going to have time to really dig into the specifics of it. But things like uh, verse 12, you are the same and your years will have no end. I mean, we could land there and preach on it for weeks if we wanted to. But in conclusion this morning, And I hope you do as we land and jump over and land and summarize that you will spend time reading this word intently, longingly looking into the heart of Jesus. But as we conclude here at Grace Auburn this morning, I want us to set our hearts on the enormity of what's been said about Jesus in verses 1 through 3 because I think we can read them and really fly right over them. So here's a list of just kind of my kind of take as I look at what's been said about Jesus in these first three verses. Jesus is 
the Son of God. Jesus is the revelation of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the promises in the Old Testament. Jesus is the heir of all things. He's the one who sat on the throne, who left the throne, and is now back on his throne, the heir of, the, of all of the universe. Jesus is both the agent of and the sustainer of all of creation, meaning he is the one who spoke through the Spirit and things came into being, and he is also the one, Hebrews 1 says, that he is the upholder of the universe by his word. When he speaks, he creates, and when he speaks, he sustains. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the expression of God's nature. Just let that sit for a minute in your soul to think that if God wanted to speak about who he is, he'd do it exactly the same again today. That Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the expression of his nature. He is the purifier of God's people. And he is also the mediator for God's people. Just think about that in like two and a half sentences. All of these things abundantly true about who Jesus is. Josh, you can leave that up for just a few minutes. Just set your heart on those things. And if, you, if we look at this list, and if we believe that this list is true, and we believe that what Scripture says about Jesus in these three verses is true, then there is not a single thing in your life that doesn't fall under the authority of one of those things. There's not a single doubt. There's not a single moment of anxiety. There's not a single thing, portion of worry in your life or questions in your life or asking the question, Jesus is really following you. Is it really worth all of this? All of it finds itself coming up against a yes and an amen in Jesus. And if all of this is true, if he truly does create and sustain everything, not barely, but just with a word, like if that is true, then, and if he promises to redeem and to purify, because Jesus doesn't just save us and then leave us to our own devices, right? No, he saves us and then he purifies us. It's called sanctification over the course of our life and following him. If, if he is true and if he does do all of these things, then surely he is greater than every mistake you've ever made or every mistake that you will make. Surely then he is greater than all of your accomplishments, though I'm sure some of you have great accomplishments. Like your resume is down here compared to what Jesus has done for eternity. He is greater than all of our mistakes. He's greater than all of our accomplishments. And surely he is greater than all of our pain. Surely he is greater than everything that has happened to us. Surely we can set our heart and our hopes on him. If Jesus came as the word, to speak life where there was death, not because he had to, but because he chose to, then we can lean on him and say, Jesus, you are better. You're better than everything I've done. You're better than everything I will do for good or bad. And you're better than anything and everything that's ever happened to me or will happen to me. Because if Jesus can uphold the universe... If Jesus can uphold the universe with his words, then surely he can uphold yours. Surely he can uphold your world, your problems, your pain, your issues, your questions. I don't believe there's ever a question in our hearts that comes if we offer it humbly toward him where Jesus is not, whoa, whoa, whoa. Noah's got issues right now. I'm kind of freaking out. Like He never does that, right? There's constantly a yes and amen in him. 
And if he can uphold the universe with his word, then he can uphold my life, your life, your pain, your struggles. A few nights ago, I was um, on the heels of being a bonehead with my wife and saying something I shouldn't have said, which is like an every other night issue. And we were getting ready for bed, and the, the kids, praise God, were all asleep. And uh, I slid into Amos's room, my son, uh, who will be five tomorrow. And I laid down next to him. And I laid there praying for him as he slept and snored. It's my fault. And I laid there praying for him as he slept, praying that he would know this. Praying that he would believe and trust in this good God. I prayed that he would look to the Father who is a far better Father than I will ever be. I prayed he would hope in a Savior who is better than anything this world is going to convince him that will save. I prayed that he would know and believe in our good God who speaks because he loves, not because he has to who longs to make himself known to Amos. I pray that he would know and believe that, and I pray that Amos would see Jesus and savor the supremacy of Jesus in light of everything else that this world is going to offer him. And I pray for all of us that no matter what's going on in our life, that we would see Jesus and we would say yes and amen. Jesus, you are better. Amen. Will you pray with me? We're so glad you listened to the Grace Auburn Church podcast. There's so much happening in the life of our church, and we could not be more excited about all that God is doing. For more information about ways that you can connect within the life of our church, go to our website, www.graceauburn.church.